You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord God, in this moment with your word open, we ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to us of this incredible gift that you have given to us. To the glory of the Father and in the name of the Son, amen. In Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia, he gives us a beautiful Christmas confession. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we may receive adoption as sons. Paul uses sonship here not in a gender-specific way, but as a relational analogy of status and dignity. In Christ, it is as if we are all firstborn sons. The coming of Christ becomes the reference point for all of history. The times of ignorance are over, the Apostle Paul preached at Athens. The author of Hebrews says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But now, in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. The primary truth in the confession is God sent his son. And then that's modified by in the fullness of time, born of a woman, born under the law. John says, this is how God showed his love for us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. The sending of the son is the climax of salvation history. Long anticipated with Noah's covenant, with Abraham's call to leave his country, to journey, giving us really the modus operandi of ascending God right off the bat. The coherent logic of this Sending God who sends his son. C.S. Lewis talks about the invasion of God in his own creation. Enemy-occupied territory, Lewis says. That is what the world is. Christianity is the story of the rightful king, that the rightful king has landed. And you might say landed in disguise, and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. The poet Madeleine Engel captures something of the timing. He did not wait till the world was ready, till men and nations were at peace. He did not wait for the perfect time. He came when the need was deep and great. He did not wait till hearts were pure In joy, he came to a tarnished world of sin and doubt. God sent his son in the fullness of time. Some have wondered if Paul is referring here to the Pax Romana, because there was a a single world government from Palestine to Spain, from North Africa to southern Germany. The geopolitical timing seemed Good. Well-built roads, knitting the empire together, the Greek language. But I doubt that Paul was thinking about Caesar 
and the Roman Empire when he spoke of the fullness of time. Much more likely that he's thinking of the promises and the prophecies and the passion of God throughout salvation history. For God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times had reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. 1,800 years before Immanuel Kant declared man come of age, before Thomas Paine's celebrated the age of reason, long before the age of discoverers, the Enlightenment, the Industrial Revolution, the scientific age, the computer age. Living as we do in our secular age, we may forget that the Christian faith inspired exploration into a rational world, played a key role in the transition from astrology to astronomy, from magic to medicine, from superstition to science, from aristocracy to democracy, from poverty to industry. God sent his son in the fullness of time, born of a woman. And here this kind of creedal confession underscores the humanity of Jesus, God's one and only son. John underscores this too, the apostle, when he says, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen in our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. We have seen it. We testify to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life which was from the Father and appeared to us. It's what we've seen. It's what we've heard. The Chalcedonian Creed in the 4th century, the 5th century, 451, confess that our Lord Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man, like us in all things except without sin, begotten from the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, as regards his manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, made known in two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. All through the New Testament, you see it underscored, the need for God's Son to be truly human. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. Now, we may be dismissive of this truth. It is, after all, a long time that has passed. In the movie The Crown, Prince Philip was riveted by the adventure and the achievement of Apollo 11. 500 million people watched the moon landing, but no one watched with greater admiration than Prince Philip. The movie version juxtaposes Philip's fascination with what man was Uh, awesomely doing in technology with an encounter with a group of clergy on the palace grounds. And he listened to their lament and their complaining 
And he listened to them for a while before blasting them for their self-pretentious, self-pitying, navel-gazing, underachieving ways. Only the British can do that really well. He says, you ought to be men of action. He compared them to the astronauts. He said, sitting around thinking and talking, what good does that do? Be men of action, doers. Well, a few weeks later, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins visited Buckingham Palace. And Philip studied for hours to prepare for questions, to relate to them. He really was fascinated by them. But the encounter personally with Philip for 15 minutes was a great disappointment to him. And he shared with the queen, I don't know what I was thinking. I expected them to be giants, gods. But instead, they were little men, pale-faced with colds. So all three of them had colds. No flair, no imagination, no originality, total absence of spontaneity, entirely anticlimactic in person. They delivered as astronauts, but disappointed as human beings. And I thought to myself, when I heard that uh, they delivered as pastors, but disappointed as human beings. I mean, the hope is not in humanity. It's certainly not in ourselves. We may deliver a certain task, But ultimately, we disappoint ourselves and one another. The episode closes with Philip going back to that group of clergy and confessing that he had lost his faith and that he needed help. And also apologizing for his ridiculous rudeness to them. I think he had begun to see that No matter how much man achieves technologically, that doesn't resolve the human dilemma. Young Lee is a good friend of mine who became a Christian while studying at the University of California, Berkeley. It was there that he first felt the dilemma in his soul. Richard Holloway, an Episcopal priest, captures what Young experienced, and and Young pointed this out to me. Holloway writes, this is my dilemma. I am dust and ashes, frail, wayward, riddled with fears, beset with needs, the quintessence of dust, and unto dust I shall return. But there's something else in me. Dust I may be, but troubled dust. Dust that dreams, dust that has strange premonitions of transfigurations, of glory in store, a destiny prepared, an inheritance that someday will be my own. Young became aware of his troubled dust at UC Berkeley. The death of a classmate, his study of physiology, and a disappointing psychology class all contributed to the need to search, 
And he began studying Sartre, Burton Russell, Albert Camus. He read Eastern thinkers, Confucius, Lao Tzu. He talked with Buddhist monks and with Christian priests. He came to the conclusion that a purely scientific rationale for life was not adequate, nor was living in some sort of escapist fantasy. He began studying the Gospel of John, and he became to the conviction that John was presenting Jesus as God's coherent thinking. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Every year, we get this great letter from friends in California. Compared to everyone else who sends us Christmas letters, they blow the competition away. They go to more exotic places, do more fun things than all of our friends combined. They have more fun in one year than I've had in my lifetime. They live in a 5,000 square foot mansion. They have a beautiful lake house. They love to travel down to Mexico in February to play with the whales and over to New York for a Broadway play in April. In May, the wife travels for her personal journey to Ireland, and the family spends three weeks in Australia during the summer, visiting the outback, befriending Aboriginal communities, diving off the Great Barrier Reef, crocodile hunting on the Dandry River, attending an opera in the Sydney Opera House. Their sons are excellent athletes, certified in scuba, accomplished musicians, leaders of the church youth group, And in addition to his law practice, the husband plays piano in a jazz band and loves it. Now I ask you, where in the midst of all of that excitement does the law of God come in? Who's going to break in on all of that and say, well, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So the purpose of the law, Paul insists, is that every mouth will be silenced and the whole world will be held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law, rather made conscious of sin. So the law was put in charge, Paul said, to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. God made Jesus Christ, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Paul says here, finally, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Adoption means a lot in the Webster household. Our two sons, uh, 
40 and 38 now, um, both adopted from hospitals a day or two after they were born. Our oldest son, Jeremiah, was given the name Adam by his biological mother as kind of a placeholder until he received the name from the family that was adopting him. It means a lot to us to use that analogy. Sometimes I wonder if the Lord put us all through that just so that this uh, person who's dedicated his life to thinking along these lines would receive the, the kind of personal experience of adoption. That you and I, in Christ, by his grace, have been adopted into his family. And if we're not, we're like cosmic orphans, estranged from God, still enslaved by sin. But because of his great love, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Christmas brings us to our knees, causes us to thank the Lord Jesus Christ for his indescribable gift. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.